Hello and welcome to Crime Time FM. I'm Paul Burke and I write about crime fiction. And here's where I interview authors about their latest novels. My guest today is Tony Kent, and he combines a career as a barrister with thriller writing. His new novel is The Shadow Network, the fifth to feature Dempsey and Devlin. It's a blend of political, legal and espionage thriller, guaranteed to get the pulse racing. And as the title The Shadow Network suggests, there's an intriguing conspiracy at the heart of the novel. And that challenges the torpor and complacency of modern democracy. So there really is a bit of depth to this too. But once you pick up this novel, you certainly won't want to put it down. It's a proper page-turner. But I'll let Tony Kent tell you more about that. Hello, Tony. Welcome to Crime Time FM. Hi, Paul. Thank you very much for having me. So depending on when people are listening, The Shadow Network has either just been published or is about to be published. And I noticed it was a Goldsboro Special Edition and a Sunday Times Book of the Month for February. You must be thrilled with the reaction so far. Yeah, the reaction's been incredible. I mean, it's um, we've had, as you say, we've had the Times stroke Sunday Times Thriller of the Month. It was also the male Thriller of the Month as well. Uh, I know we're being reviewed in The Sun, um, which I think comes out possibly on the 16th. Right. And I'm, I think we're in The Express and The Sunday Express. It's certainly... I've, I've, I've been one of the Thrillers of the Month before in The Times with mm. Power Play and with... Uh, Power Play was Thriller of the Month in the Times. No Way to Die was Thriller in the Month in um, in the Sunday Times. But it's never been all of them. Um, this right. is the first time that we've had kind of universal um, praise from from the various uh, newspapers. So, yeah, it's incredible. It really is. To sort of sit back and see them all coming in is um, is, is heartening because it, it wasn't an easy book to write, I have to say. It took right. me longer than the others to write it. Um, because I was trying to find a balance between my renewed day job life mm. after COVID, after COVID stopped and all the barrister strikes stopped, the, the the life at the bar just went crazy, right. and so I, I was trying to find a balance between writing and and my day job. So it was a hard one to write. So to have all these these great reviews has been has just been amazing because you can't help but worry that you haven't got the balance right. You know? Yeah. How about then with the, the public? Are you going to get much chance to get out there and, and talk about the book? We're going to do a, um, a a good tour, I think, when we release the paperback in June. Right. Um, it would really help me if we were doing that tour now, because for the next few weeks, I'm fairly flexible. In <laughs> June, I'll be in the middle of a trial in Cardiff. So Always the way. A trial in the afternoon and getting straight on a train or a plane or whatever to the next shop and then coming back to continue the trial the next day. So it's going to be difficult. but. I do really want to get out there. I do want to get out and do, you know, a few Waterstones events. Mm. Waterstones very good at doing them. I mean, I I've, I do a lot of events with um, the Gerard's Cross, the Chilton Kills bookshops, because I live near right. Gerard's Cross. They're really good at events. Chorleywood Book Club, uh, Bookshop and Gerard's Cross Bookshop. They're really good for events. So I do quite a lot with them. I'm going to be doing a lot of, uh, I don't think I'm allowed to talk about them, but I know I'm doing a lot of festivals uh, this year. The one festival I can talk about is my own festival, which is Chilton Kills. Yes, of course. Obviously, I'll be at that, but I'm also going to be at quite a lot of the other major ones. So, so yeah, there'll, there'll be a lot of um, of sort of FaceTime with the public, which I'm which I'm looking forward to. I quite like, despite my day job being standing up and talking, I also enjoy standing up and talking in my spare time. <laughs> As all barristers, we are all in love with the sound of our own voice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are good at it, so why not? Um is a point i'm sure you get asked this an awful lot but you you just told me and i know it's in the public domain anyway but you've just moved house you are a barrister 
you've got this writing career. I mean, how do you balance all that? And your family, of course, as well, you know. I think I, I, I think about this question a lot because I, I do get asked it a, quite, a fair bit. And, and it's only recently that I think I've really worked out the answer mm. because normally I give an answer that's a bit logistical, finding right. time here, there, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't, think really, I don't really think that's the question. Um, I think the question is why, isn't it, really, more than anything else? Why do you do this when it takes Good up point. so much of your, of, of your limited free time? And I think the answer really, Paul, is that I treat this as a hobby. And and I will always treat it as a hobby. I, I, I put out, in general, one book a year. Um, that's manageable. It's difficult, but it's manageable. But for me, I have to treat it as a hobby. My day job is unusually highly stressed. Mm-hmm. Um, I see some horribly dark things on a day-to-day basis, and they're real. Mm-hmm. I see things that juries don't have to see. Uh, right. Thank God for them. Because we, when we first get these cases, we we, we sort of sieve out the stuff that that, that, yeah, that they don't need so, yeah. to see that mm. could really traumatize them. Some things will still traumatize them, but we we yeah, we keep it to a minimum. Mm. And really it's only what you have to see. But we've got to see the lot. I mean I won't go into the kind of horrible things that we've experienced like I've had to experience, but it's it's a great job with a very, very horrible downside, which is mm. that. And so for me, writing's my escape. Writing is my hobby. Now, yeah, it's a hobby that comes with contractual obligations because it's gone well. But um but I, I don't ignore them. I promise, Elliot and Thompson, I don't ignore them. Um, I don't ignore them. But I don't let them control me. I don't let them um, yeah. dominate my thinking. Because I think the moment it becomes a job, if it ever becomes a job for me, I think at that point I'll struggle. Yeah, then you'd have to start making choices. Yeah, whereas at the moment I, I treat it as a hobby and and I hope I always can. But take the writing seriously, of course. So did you? Oh, always no, it's want... a very serious hobby. When I say hobby, Paul, I mean I was. No, uh, I, know, I know what you meant. Yeah. I'm the kid who, who at 13 years old, decided to take up boxing as a hobby and then lived in a gym for for 10 years. Um, you know, <laughs> I, I, I do hobbies slightly obsessively. So, <laughs> so it is. Um, it, yeah, it, it, it's a hobby, but it's a Tony hobby. <laughs> so, was it always in your mind to be a writer, or is this something that came along later? No, it's, I always wrote. Always, always wrote. Um, but I never intended it to go anywhere. I think when yeah. I was a kid, I used to tell people I wanted to be a journalist, but that was because I wanted to be Clark Kent. Uh, hence, <laughs> hence Tony yeah, Kent, the surname. Um, and, and yeah, I always, I did always write short, short stories, uh, comic books, even though I couldn't draw TV shows and films, even though I had no idea what their scripts actually looked like. But it was always visual things. I always wrote visual things. And it was only when I read The Winner by David Bardacci. I mean, I've said this many times now. So when I read The Winner by David Bardacci that I realised that actually you could write books in a visual, exciting mm. manner as well. Before that, I, I read factual books. I read I loved history. I loved mythology. I weirdly had a bit of an obsession with religion. I found that fascinating. Right. So I'd read all these different, slightly weird things for a teenager. Um, and I never read books, uh, fiction books. I didn't know that, that, that these kinds of books existed. Our kinds mm. of books existed. I didn't know James Bond came from a book. Um, I thought books were Wuthering Heights and Pride and Prejudice. And right, yeah. The all of these wonderfully well-written things that for a teenage boy are boring as hell. And and so just, they and, make you do at school anyway. And they make you do them at school. And then my mum read a book called The Winner by David Bardacci, which I maintain is one of the best thrillers ever written. I think that his first run of five books are, are unsurpassed in terms of five standalone thrillers. I mean, he's, right. he's, been, great, he's been great since then. But those first five books, 
just stunning. And I read that, and and within the sort of 50 pages, I was casting it. I was seeing it so visually that I was thinking, oh, so-and-so would be great for that character. So-and-so would be amazing as Luan, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and from that moment, that was it. I had to write at some point. Um, unfortunately, the the competing main day yeah, job sure. career prevented it until I was about 30. But then from 30, it became a flat-out obsession. Right, so you obviously knew all along it was going to be propulsive kind of thrillers that you were going to be writing. Exactly. Yeah. I, talk- I, I write. I write what I like to read. To be honest, I mean, it's- yeah, no, no, that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense, and I think you can tell that because then the love comes through in the writing. You know, and yeah, it's important yeah. that that's there uh, for the reader as well. I want to talk about a couple of things just before we go there, and you mentioned one, and that's Chilton Kills, and I think it's worth a chat um, because this is an event that you organised last year and went very successfully. Freddie Forsyth was the main guest, I think, wasn't he? He was. Well, tell us a little bit about Chilton Kills, please. Well, Chilton Kills was uh, an idea that uh, it grew from another idea where the, as an, another author, another local author, had, had decided they wanted to do sort of a literary salon, uh, right. exactly, sort of saloon. Um, in 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 I this the latter personally, but there yeah, you go. In in this particular venue, and and they they said, oh, maybe we'll do a crime panel. Tony, would you be interested in the crime panel? So I went along to see the venue. I was thinking, well, you know, maybe, maybe not. And I saw the venue and just thought, wow, um, we could do so much more with this. This could be actually a proper, a proper festival. Mm. And I just figured we were missing, um, we were missing a a one day crime one and done festival. I mean, I love Harrogate. I love uh, bloody Scotland. I love Capital Crime. They're all amazing, and I could not possibly compete with them. I wouldn't even mm. dream of trying. But they are a big commitment in time. And yeah. I just thought there's nowhere that really gets big names all in one place, all on one day, an intense one and done. So I thought, let's see if we can do it. So I looked into it. Um, Paul Waters, a co-organizer, got involved mm-hmm. as well. Amazing, uh, absolutely amazing author who who logistically did way more than I did. I mean, he, he really made it happen in, in a lot of I was very good at ideas and saying let's do this let's do that <laughs> let's do that and then coming back to a meeting to discover that they've been done <laughs> uh, so uh, so and then my wife got involved and Paul's wife got involved and ultimately w- w- the idea we had was also why don't we do this for charity yeah. why don't we actually do this purely as a purely altruistic charitable thing from everyone so I got in touch with a load of authors thinking that few of them would come back um i mean a lot of 75 authors i contacted yeah right 73 of them came back and said yes brilliant the two that didn't say yes are coming this year and the reason they didn't say yes was they had pre-book holidays that they couldn't get out of and they both would have said yes and have said yes for this year so it is technically a hundred percent success rate for something for which they're not paid a penny they cover their own expenses they got to pay their own hotel rooms. They pay their own bar bill. I mm. mean, ultimately, it was it was incredible to see just how many people in the crime writing community. And I mean, you know yourself, Paul. Some of them are very well paid. Some of them aren't. Many yeah, absolutely. Aren't. So this isn't like just a lot of rich guys coming together saying, "Well, we can spunk some money around and just have a drink." There's people there who who don't have that capacity as well, and. I ended up having to find room for 73 authors on a, on a one, on a one day schedule. And I managed to do it. And well, Paul and I managed to do it, but, um, but it was, it was really successful. I mean, it was, I was able to learn a lot of lessons from, from Harrogate and from bloody Scotland. I mean, I've been to so many of them. My wife was fantastic because she's been to them with me. 
So right. she didn't have to worry about being on stage. So she was able to actually run things logistically with Paul's wife, Anisha, who hasn't been to them, but who picked it up so incredibly quickly. And so between Victoria and Anisha, they they did the logistics perfectly. I mean, we, we the one thing that we were told by, the one bit of feedback we got from almost everyone was, this feels like it's the fifth or sixth year you've done this. Um, you know, it's so serious. Right. So it was that so, that settled right from the start. Yeah. yeah. So, it was so obviously, it, sorry. I was going to say, obviously, you wanted to go back again. I mean, you obviously had such a success with it. Is yeah. it for Centrepoint again this year? It's for Centrepoint, yeah. So Centrepoint, you know yourself, is the is the Prince William's charity. Uh, yeah. I think we have to say the Prince of Wales now. Prince of Wales charity about um, that fights youth homelessness in the UK. Um, I've wanted to do something with them for a while because a friend of mine is, is I think technically I'm a patron of theirs, um, a friend of mine works for them organizing events and I've wanted to do something with them. I've done a lot of charitable things like through work over the years with Cordwell children and, mm. uh, and all, all different and some military charities, but I've always wanted to do something with Centerpoint. So this came up and it was an opportunity to do that. And yeah, we, we raised decent money for them. Literally every penny, literally every penny of, of ticket sales goes in there. Goes went, in there right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, no author is paid a penny. I'm paid nothing. Paul's paid nothing. Our wives, no one draws a wage of any sort. Everything we can give to Centerpoint gets given to Centerpoint. And that includes every penny of every ticket. Um, I mean, even the ticket platform waives their own fee. Right. And that way we can do it relatively cheap. I think it's £40 a ticket for the whole day. You can see, I think about, I think oh, no, that, that's a remarkable price just to chip yeah, in. And, and for this year, I think that, that, that can get you like on that. 16 panels. Um, it was 20 panels last year, but we've decided to be a bit sensible this year. Mm. Um, this year we'll get you onto 16 panels and we've got some massive names coming. I mean, Freddie was incredible to have Freddie on our inaugural one, but, um, that left us with the pressure of how do you top Freddie? Yeah, of course. Yeah. And I don't think you can, I don't think you can. But, ever but you've got a match, yeah. but we've got to match it. And this year we have, we've, um, we'll be announcing at the end of the month who we've got and it's, it's some big names. All right, well, let's just say for people then, look out for that, and obviously they can get tickets and the event will be going on later in the year. Yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about was the work you do for TV and that as well, because you're also involved with things like uh, My Lover, My Killer, and I, this new Victorian one I saw actually the other yeah. day. Tell us a little bit about that, please. Um, that's that, that's quite I – th I think they pull me in for that because my I've got the title barrister, and I think they, they know because of what I do both for both for a living and for a living that I can tell a story. Right. And and so I get brought in, I think, just as a it gives it a bit of respectability in, in terms of each episode, because it looks like you're with with the modern ones. I think a lot of people assume I was the barrister in the case. I never oh, was yeah. any of them. Obviously, they can't assume that for the Victorian ones, unless I look <laughs> a lot worse than, uh, than I think. I do. But um, but it's it's interesting. It's uh, it takes me a day to do a series. You know, I can go and do six episodes in a day. Um, and it's, it's, it's actually an interesting pastime. It's an interesting thing to do. It's very good for my profile. Um, mm. you know, we all know that names sell books. Yeah, it's absolutely. Not, so yeah, if you're, if you're in WH Smith and you see five names and you know, one of them, you're going to pick up the one, you know, yeah, no, uh, nine times out of 10. So it's, it is a little bit about building a profile and making the name Tony Kent mean something for that reason. Um, but at the same time, it's also really enjoyable. I really quite enjoy doing it. It's, uh, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a challenge. When I first started as a barrister, we would take on maybe 15 cases a day where right. you'd obviously not trials, trials. Yeah, yeah, sure. Time, yeah. But, but when you're not in trial 
cases have lots of other hearings. They'll have bail applications and sentences. Right. And even just case management hearings and things like that. And we would get maybe on a on a on a good good Friday afternoon, you might get given 15 cases. And it doesn't really happen anymore, um, but how it used to be. And you'd go down and you would do your 15 cases and you'd be jumping between prosecution and defense, stepping across to here, stepping across, running to the next court. And you'd have to be in these cases each every single time. Yeah, you know, yeah you'd have to be sharp every time you turn on this case. And I've not done that for a long time because I now, as you get more senior, you just special, you do very serious work and much longer. Yeah, it's work. a long term trials. It's a yeah. long term. So that that that's. But I always really enjoyed that. It was a mental exercise, and this filming kind of feels a bit like that because I'm jumping right. between episodes. So this episode is about X murder, where this person's has their head chopped off and dumped off the um, the Putney Bridge. And then the next murder is about somebody burying their husband in a back garden somewhere in Bermondsey. And it's all you know, completely different stuff, mm. but you've got to be on it and you've got to be. So it's, it's, it's enjoyable. It just sort of kind of reminds me of how I started out in my job. No, it sounds like you enjoy it. The other thing, of course, as you, as you point out, it does relate to both your careers. Yeah, exactly. Let's talk a little bit about the writing. One of the things I heard you say was that you wanted to create the James Bond for the 21st century. Yeah. Was it? A bit like Lee Child, you know, he sort of sat down, he got a piece of paper in front of him and he said, I'm going to create this character and it's going to be one, two, three, bop, bop, bop. And that's what it is. Were you sort of that, you know, set in what you knew you were going to do at that point? I knew I, I knew who I wanted Dempsey to be. Right. I knew what I wanted to Demp- Dempsey to be. Um, I He didn't come out fully formed. Um, that that came later. That that came after a few a, a few people read it. And I think right. when I first wrote Killer Intent, the first of the, of the books, I think there's a few things Dempsey did in the first few drafts of that that they didn't they didn't suggest sadism or they didn't just they didn't suggest too much enjoyment in what mm. he does, but they did suggest a bit of a coldness and a bit of a okay, right. a willingness yeah. to to go to a certain extent straight away. And I I preferred the idea that Dempsey is I like the idea of someone being very good at something that they don't that they find distasteful and it's something that's necessary. Uh, and someone has to do it, but and it just happens that he's the one who can do it. But so 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 I I, I kind of developed or got to the point where Dempsey's a man who doesn't particularly like violence. He doesn't like what he has mm. to do, but he's done so much bad in his life that he feels he's got to make up for it. And and that 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 definitely didn't start fully formed. That definitely developed across. Yeah. That developed across all the iterations of Killer Intent. And has continued to develop across the rest yeah, of the Yeah, because he's a much more reflective character than, say, mm. Reacher, for instance. So yeah. we get that along the way. So was it always a series? And sort of like that, that you were going to create this almost universe that you were going to fit your characters into, if you like? It was always a Dempsey series. And, mm. and that's where I got a bit thrown at the beginning because I didn't realise when I was writing Killer Intent that I was writing a Michael Devlin book. Right. Michael Devlin was always going to be a one and done. He was the he was going to be a character who was in it. Comes from a family of villains, um, interesting character. But in my mind, I, I was a barrister, and I know that there's only so many little scrapes a barrister can get into until they become ridiculous. Now, I call it the Bergerac syndrome. How many people can get killed in Jersey? And <laughs> and it was um, and it was that. And so in my mind, it was like I can't be a Dem- it can never be a Michael series. It's got to be a Dempsey mm. series. He's an international intelligence agent. It makes sense that he gets into these things. Whereas Michael is a barrister in London, it does not make sense that he gets into all these no, things. No, it doesn't. 
And of course, people and, might assume it's a more natural character for you because it's more of your yeah. background in that character. And there's much more of me in Michael. And Michael, mm. I'd love to think that I was Joe Dempsey, <laughs> but I'm really not. I'm much, yeah, me much too. more Michael. I'm much, much more Michael. And I mean, Michael's an idealized version of me. Yeah, he's better looking and slimmer. And I think I'm taller than him, which I think is the only advantage I have over him. He's better <laughs> at his job. He's every, in every other way. But um, it was never supposed to be a Michael series. It was never so much a universe. Which, which is what it became. It was going to be the Dempsey series. Right. But then after writing Killer Intent, while I was pitching it around, a friend of mine said, you know what? There's no there's no English John Grisham. There's no British John Grisham. This mm. is before Steve Kavanagh came along and became the British John Grisham. Right, right. Um, he said, there's no British John Grisham. So uh, yeah, may, maybe you should write, write about the, the barrister character. So I wrote Mark for Death, which is very much a Michael book. Um, and everyone assumed at that point, and I, I guess understandably, that I was writing a Michael series. And so when I I then made a, a, an absolute sort of conscious decision that power play would be Dempsey's killer intent. Because right. although Dempsey and Michael are in killer intent to the same amount of time, for the same amount of time, almost exactly, it's Michael's story. Dempsey's doing his job. There's a personal element, but mainly he's doing his job. Whereas Michael, we're finding out about his life. So that's what I switched around with power play. Power play, we have Michael doing his job. And it's a bit more personal for Dempsey, only in, in that we find out it's not personal in the sense of anything other than we find out a bit more about him yeah. um, via via his interaction with Eden Grace. And then obviously we then move on to No Way to Die, which is a purely Dempsey story, Dempsey no matter story. at all. Yeah. And then The Shadow Network, which is the, the one we're here to talk about, is, is again very much a Dempsey story. Michael's in it. Michael plays an absolutely fundamental role. He's no way sidelined. He's a main character, but it doesn't make sense in an action thriller to have Michael being the action hero. No, no, absolutely. And Dempsey's there. Yeah. I mean, he, he sets it up in this story. Yeah. I want to talk just a little bit more about the characters before we get onto the specific book, but he sets it up in a way so that Dempsey's role becomes important yeah. in the story. Yeah. And that's what happens. But it is interesting you say that. One of the things about having these such diverse characters is it gives you a chance to go into various different areas, doesn't it? it you really get does. to go into so many different places. And, of course, you expanded that a little bit as well because you mentioned there Eden Grace and also we've got Sarah Truman. Yeah. So you've, you've developed, I suppose, an ensemble, really, haven't you? I, I, th I think I have, yeah. And, uh, and actually, in the Shadow Network, we, we also meet, again, Joel Levy, yeah. who is the Detective Chief Inspector in Scotland Yard from Mark for Death, who, who was in one, obviously was in one book. She appears in one chapter of the Shadow Network. But that chapter is now going to lead to her having a fairly major role alongside Dempsey in in what would otherwise be a Dempsey book with no Michael at all, uh, which is book six that I'm writing at the moment. So Joel Levy, as a result of that one chapter in the Shadow Network, is now sort of co-lead in book six set in New York into Dempsey's world, even though she's from Michael's world. So it is in, I do I do very much look at it like a whole universe thing. I I I, I hate I use in my head as, as my um as my guide for what not to do the marvel universe the marvel cinematic universe right because i remember watching uh iron man 3 and iron man 3 was a really good film i really enjoyed it a lot of people don't i thought it was a great film uh but what was really pissing me off during this film was that iron man's having all these struggles and going through this that and the other and he phones his mate from the army, uh, the the roadie, the war the war machine guy. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't phone the Hulk. 
and he doesn't he's got like the hulk <laughs> and he's got the god of thunder he's got contact to these guys come down and end the film in five minutes yeah i see what you mean some bloke from the army and you just think mm, i can't do that i've got to find a way in these books to always explain why for example if michael's in trouble why doesn't he just go and phone Dempsey, the hardest man he's ever met, who will just come down and deal with it? Because obviously the threat level to Dempsey is, is a lot higher than a threat level to Michael. Yeah, and what Michael will struggle with, Dempsey won't struggle with. And therefore, you do have to, in your mind, think, got to keep these guys separate and find a way to keep these guys separate. So that's the sort of that's the lesson I've learned about universe making from probably the most famous universe as, as is being written now or, or as is being produced now, which is Marvel. Um, but that's the downside. The upside is, as you say, it gives you so many options. There are so mm. many different things to write, so many different stories that could be written with different characters. I mean, book six is introducing a couple of New York cops in a, in a parallel investigation to to Dempsey. And, and I've already got an idea for a book about them, just them. And it's just, it, it's, it, it just sp- spreads the possibilities. Yeah, Why no, it's great. Possibly? I mean, it, the thing is, it, it sounds very organic. And um, one of the things about that, of course, is the more it's sort of exciting and, and surprising it is for you, then the better it does for us as readers as well, because we yeah. know you haven't set up something. I mean, how much do you plan, actually, when you're writing? <laughs> Nothing. Um, right. It's, 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 the, it's the old question, is it? Are you a planner or a planner mm. or a potter or a pantser? And I always think, actually, I think there's another P in there somewhere, and I think it's a – is it a ponderer? Do I want to call it ponderer? <laughs> um, because I don't really do either. I don't write by this – I don't just sit down – and write from nothing. But I don't plan anything either. What I do is I'll come up with an idea, a one-liner, and then I'll think about it for about three months. And uh, and I'll just wonder about, and that will be in my mind during the course of the day. Uh, and it's normally about three months. And after about three months, I think, I think I'm ready to sit down. I'll have a few set pieces that I've come up with in that time. A little bit of, you know, a bit of this, that, or the other. You know, I've got some idea of what's going on. I never write anything down. Because I take the view, if it's a good idea, it will stay. And if it's not a good idea, if, if it's an idea you forget, then maybe learn why. You know, yeah, right. Okay, if, yeah, if you're going to forget thing. it, there might be a reason you forgot it. Yeah. Mm. Um, so I don't, I don't write anything down from what I'm thinking during those three months. And then I sit down and start writing. And and what comes out is very rarely much to do with what I with, with the first line that I started thinking about three months before. So it's not plotting. It's mm. not practicing. And I think pondering might be the only <laughs> might, might be the only P that works. One of the things about it is, though, there's more sophistication, as we said, than, and I'm not knocking Reacher. Reacher does what Reacher does, and it's great. But if you take something like that where there's, there's kind of no reflection, there's no uh, development in the character, there's no character arc, and there's not really much understanding of flaw or anything else. You know? But that's important to you. So does that sort of uh, the emotions that generate by the characters, is that sort of what leads then how you get into those action sequences or how we find out what goes on in the plot, if you like? Yeah, I think, I think very much. I think that... My my plots are pro- would probably be accurately described as slightly high concept, uh, in the sense you know I'm I'm not I'm not writing the bill, <laughs> I'm not writing. If if you were to compare something sort of police procedural to what I write, then it'd probably be sort of line of duty, which 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 I'm which I'll describe in the following ways. What is what I mean by that is I write stuff that when you watch it you can believe it, or when you read it you can believe yeah. it. it. Makes complete sense. It seems procedurally correct. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. When you step away and you think back and you actually think about it, it's a bit absurd because it's entertainment. 
but it's it's close enough to reality yeah. you can enjoy it while you're it's reading. that fine line of having a plausibility yeah. isn't it yeah you're not writing superman you're writing but you're not, but you're also not writing me you know you're writing someone who is who is somewhere in between the two <laughs> james bond <clears throat> you read right. a james bond book they're compelling they yes. are <clears throat> absolutely gripping not for a moment do you wonder well that couldn't happen unlike some of the films uh but when you step back and you think about the James Bond film you've just you've just read, mm. you have the same reaction, which is, yeah, okay, that's a bit over the top, and yeah. and that's fine. You kind of just put it away. It's don't entertainment. You? It's entertainment, and that's what I'm going for. But so, so having said that, and they are they are slightly high concept plots, but they are also I like to think, and and they are I can I can assure you, completely character driven, because these characters are real. In my mind, mm. they're real. I mean, I don't know what they look like. But I know how they think. I know everything about their emotions. I know precisely how they would react to any given um, situation. And the weirdest thing is that that's true even of the minor characters. I mean, as I'm writing, that each book seems to introduce accidentally two or three or four more characters that I will mm. return to at some point because I start getting to know them as well. And and I, I yeah, it's they're they're almost like they're but that's that pondering thing again. Yeah. They're almost like they're your friends. You you know them so well. You want to see them. I want to see them again. And so I'll find a reason for them to come in. And then they'll start doing stuff that I had never planned for them that is just consistent with what they that particular person would do. So I know Dempsey inside out. I know Michael inside out. I know Sarah and Eden inside out. I also know Bambi O'Rourke, who's been in one book, right. inside out. Uh, I know Joelle Levy inside out. She's been in one book, although it's about to change. And so it's, 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 it is all very much character-driven. I mean, the, the way the plot develops is always very character-driven. No, absolutely, and I do get a sense of that. Otherwise, I wouldn't have you know, even raised it as a point. Just on that, then, I mean, you said they're high concept. Could we possibly say conspiracy theory? But, but your books, I mean, they're political. They're spy stories. They're legal. You know, it's yeah. what we said about this scope you've got. How would you describe it, then, just before we talk about the Shadow Network? Set it up a little bit as a series. As a series, they're, they're action thrillers, I guess. They're, they're, they are, but I would like to think that they're the thinking man's action thrillers. It's not just wham, bam, explosion, punch. There's thought that goes behind them. There's some high concept, some low concept. I mean, but ultimately they are, they, they are very much, oh, it's very hard to, it's very hard to actually, to, 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 it, to it kind of is. Up. I mean, because they, they do, are in so they many do spread areas. across a lot of genres. Mm. But ultimately, I think they are. They are what they're intended to be. They're sort of roller coaster, seat of your pants, grip the edge of your seat, um, action thrillers. Oh yeah, and, and as, as page turners go, these these are serious page turners, and so it's the social much. network. Do you know what? I, if I had to really just sum it up completely, now that I really think about it, mm. I think they're just thrillers. I think yeah. if you actually just if you just go take the word thriller, yeah. and yeah, you're and right. You know, we can be to, too clever. Take about it down it, to its we? most basic form. They're thrillers. Mm. Well, tell us about the Shadow Network then, please, Tony. Well, the Shadow Network is the fifth in the series. Um, it's Dempsey and Devlin working alongside each other again. It's the first time that my two main characters, uh, main series characters, have been physically together again since the first book. Um, and it begins with a bang. It begins with what seems to be a terrorist uh, shooting, kind of like the American mass shootings we see far too often. Mm. But this time it's happening in The Hague in the Netherlands where we don't see these things at all. 
there are a couple of lawyers who are friendly with Michael Devlin to get caught up in this. One in particular is one of his closest friends, and Michael feels compelled to get over there and make sure his friend's okay because nobody can find him. And Dempsey happens to be with Michael at the time and won't let Michael go alone because Dempsey is Dempsey. Uh, they get their way to The Hague, and what follows from there is a very fast-paced, very action-packed dive into a centuries-old conspiracy or a one-century-old conspiracy, going all the way back to the Russian Revolution and going all the way back to an awful lot of what has happened since the Russian Revolution um, internationally and domestically over there. It's basically sort of embedded long-term espionage that is not quite wedded to a regime mm. so it's not the kgb working for the soviets it's a different thing um and it's a different thing that is working for russia but not necessarily any particular russian regime uh, and what we've got is a study really in a study really in just how widespread something like that and just how pervasive and invasive something like that could be and how influential something like that could be if it had a century to sort of create, to, 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 to get itself into, to get its teeth into its target. Right. It's a really interesting way of putting it all because it's very difficult to talk about this. We don't want to say too much. Um, yeah. I mean, people will get, you know, shadow network, but if we say too much, then we will spoil some of the books. So we don't really exactly. want to get That's into it. That's why it makes the description so hard. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, actually, one of the things that struck me, first of all, was about character. You said about that. And of course, one of the ways that these two guys get together in the first place is you make it over a baptism. So it's yeah. a very natural, ordinary way for people to come together. And it struck me that um, using that sort of mentioning religion, not as, as a, an issue, but showing that they had religion was something that actually has gone out of um, a lot of writing. You know, it's something that people kind of walk away from. Yeah. And yeah, it was, it was interesting that these two characters came together that way. I did wonder a little bit about, because we're talking about a conspiracy, and I think it's a plausible conspiracy. That's the point. You make it plausible. Um, and there's an awful lot of implausible sort of um, conspiracies around religious issues and things. You yeah. know, there's a lot of talk about Opus Day and all sorts of Dan Brown stuff. And that's, for me, a little bit on the nonsense side of things, yeah. if you like. So it was really key for you to make a plausible uh, sort of conspiracy, I take it. Yeah. It's really, it really is. I mean, so power play is, is, a, is a conspiracy. There's an element, there's an element of conspiracy in, uh, in in no way to die. They with no way to die. I kind of took the view of. I remember watching the insurrection that took place with with Donald Trump and thinking at the time, you know, what would happen if this was being done? If this was being led by a man who's not an idiot, uh, which is where no way to die came from. So the same kind of people, but with someone in charge. Going back to what we said about Marvel, what about if you take Tony Stark and put him where Trump was? How yeah, would that right? That was kind of the inspiration for um, for No Way to Die. So for this one, th this one, it was very, very important to me to get this right. Um, there's nothing in this in the history when you learn the history behind it that you, the, the book describes as you get. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in there that's actually not true. All of these organisations existed. All of these people existed. Right. All of these people were involved in so. So effectively, what what I created, I, I tried to create is a threat level, is a, is, a, is, a, is a conspiracy or a shadow network that when, if you research anything that's in it, you'll find that most of, of what I'm talking about is yeah, true. Yeah, I see. You've and woven it into the real Exactly. History. And what I've tried to do is create a situation whereby things, well, what about if they were working at a, at a, 
what about if they were working on two levels? What mm. about if there was the public face, which is what we can find historically, but there was also the non-public face, the more sinister face? And so by keeping it rooted to real people and real things, um, I think I've been able to keep, I think I've been able to make something realistic. Now, it's not Smirsh. It's not Spectre. Yeah, exactly. That's what. It's that's one of the things I was trying to get at, really. Yeah, it's yeah. not that. Um, yeah, it's, uh, that's, it's born in that, that it's got its roots very much in the real world and very much in the 20th century. Yeah. And I mean, we're talking about an invisible enemy that's sort of playing both ends against the middle, if you like. Yeah, so, you know, precisely. That's, but it, what I did think it did was very interesting was you, you're kind of looking at democracy in this book as well and sort of suggesting that, I don't know, that we sort of say, take it for granted, we're keeping the peace in the world. Yeah. And in reality, are we? Or is yeah. it all just stitched together as some kind of crazy semblance that's sort of i mean there's wars all over the world all the time yeah so so you're kind of looking at it and saying you know well is it like we think it is is that well that's a big part of the dempsey character a big Mm. part of dempsey character is uh yeah he he was an assassin uh for the british government and he was effectively indoctrinated in the same way as Mm. we see um islamic extremists indoctrinate their children the idea was that we were doing the same with with our with our patriotic kids in the army and the, for the first 10 years of his working career, Dempsey was, if he showed up at your door, you were dead. And and he was doing that without question because he was sent by the army, uh, by the British government. And it's only after a while that he starts thinking, well, hang on a second, maybe they're not right. Maybe they're not, maybe they are, they sometimes are, sometimes, not saying they're the bad guys, but maybe they're mm. not always the good guys. And so it's about him maturing you know, the, uh, before the series ever starts. We have that maturing of Dempsey and that realisation right. that maybe maybe it's not all cut and dried maybe it's not all black and white and i'm a massive believer in that in 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 general that for me is the biggest the big similarity between myself and dempsey is that trait which is that nothing is black and white mm. nothing is not everything is nuanced no one is ever the bad guy all the time no one is ever the good guy all the time some are bad guys a whole lot more than others etc cetera, etc cetera, but nothing is black and white and I like to bring that into all of the books. I like to have that in all of the books because that's Dempsey's mindset. That's Dempsey's mm. worldview is that I don't care who's told me this. I'm going to find out for myself. And I really wish that the rest of the world would live that way because then <laughs> we Twitter could definitely and do it a bit more would not be as powerful as they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, we could definitely do it a bit more of that. So, of course, you made him now. He's working for the UN. Yeah, and that's another interesting aspect. I mean, that's again something that's rarely brought into thriller books. You know, it's usually the Americans and the Chinese, yeah. or it's the Russians, or whatever. But that gives you a lot more scope, doesn't it? Well, it does. I, I, I obviously I made him British. I made him British because I wanted him to be British. Um, yeah. I wanted James Bond for the twentieth century, twenty first century. But James Bond for the twenty first century can't work for the British government yeah, because right. he can't afford to fill up his Aston Martin with petrol. So you're just going to write a terrible series Mm. if you want to write that series now. So I had to have him working for the place that with, with that we all, I know a fair bit about the United Nations. I've got some friends that work for them. The United Nations in my books bears no resemblance to the real United Nations. But what it does is it bears resemblance to what we think it might be like. Yeah, right. what, What the rest of the world imagines, this wonderful world's police force. It really isn't that. There are huge negatives to the United Nations, but I'm not writing. I'm not writing a factual book. As we know, the presidents are different, the prime ministers are different. So, in my mind, the United Nations went a slightly different way as well, and was much more effective. 
And so, yeah, having him work for the United Nations, it allows it allows him to be the world's policeman, which I think is something that there's a huge amount of potential in. You know what? It's just a throwaway here, but there was something you said right at the start of the book, and it's Dempsey says something like he's tired because he's just been uh, tackling a dirty bomb, failing to hold a prison break, and fighting domestic terrorists in the Appalachians. Yeah. And you throw that away as a sense, and I thought, if that doesn't make people want to go back and read the last book, I don't know what yeah. will. <laughs> yeah, the, the, the occasional little commercial thing that gets slipped, slipped in there. <laughs> it's quite difficult, actually, because I do write them, pure, as so you can read them as standalones. And there's no question as the series goes on that you'll get more if you read them as a series. But they do still need to be written as standalones. And it's getting slightly harder each time to not want to tell the whole story right. from the previous book. Yeah, no, actually, I suppose that must be one of the really difficult things as a writer to give people enough, but not to to get to the point where you yeah. bore people who've read the other books. Yeah, that exactly. wouldn't be helpful at all, would it? it? Precisely. Or tell the other book again to someone who's not read it, who therefore is going to just get bored as well. It, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very, very fine balancing act. I've gone wrong on it on a number of times, but luckily Pippa, my editor, has always managed to catch it. Uh, well, no, it's always good to have a good editor. That's what people should appreciate, editors. You know, they really do a good job for writers too. If you've got a good partnership, you're well yeah. in. They're, 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 they are. I mean, Pip has edited all of my books. And, and yeah, I, I, they would be very, very different books without her. So United Nations, CIA, the Russians. Yeah. Um, it's a complex, it's, it's an incredibly complex, but essentially there's this cat and mouse chase in the middle of it as well, you know. Yes. How was it writing that complexity, though? Did it just, you know, you said about you don't plan it, but, you you know, it goes with the characters and the characters lead the action and so on. But there is an awful lot of complexity in this book. Was that just something that, you know, we were able to handle? Just Yeah, I think along? it's just, it's, it's, I don't know, it just, it worked that way for me, if, if I can put it that way. I just, um, I write, I, I, I try to write logically. Mm -hmm. My books are long. And the reason my books are long is that I don't leave things out. And the reason I don't leave things out is not because I don't trust the intelligence of my reader. It's because by not leaving things out, it makes logical sense to me. Yeah, right. I, But uh, by writing the book the way I write them, I can follow A to B to C to D to E. And I just feel that that's necessary, certainly with, with complicated conspiracy-based spy espionage plots. I think that I read a book once. And I won't say who wrote it or who it's or, or what it was because I loved it. It was a great book until mm -hmm. the very end. And then the very end just sort of jumped a few weeks and it jumped a few weeks and then started speaking about things people have worked out during those few weeks. And I just thought, well, we need to see that. We don't, yeah. you can't just say, oh yeah, he, 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 he deducted that during his time on holiday. Yeah, it's just like that. You need to see. Yeah. So I, I feel that, that, that we need to follow it through for it not to have a. I'm sure that there are people who can do this, who can do this differently, who can do this right. I don't think I can. I need to see it, and that's how I keep track of it. It's not by. I don't keep track of it with post-it notes. I don't keep track of it with copious notes or mm -hmm. spider diagrams. I, I keep track of it by writing it. I think you're right, though. You know, you lose a reader if you give them some kind of quandary that they can't get past. Yeah. If it's there in their mind, then that will affect the way they read the rest of the book. So that's not very helpful. Yeah, you got you, you you've got to leave you got to leave enough breadcrumbs that they can work it out for themselves. You got to hope that they don't, but it, that it makes sense in retrospect. So, yeah. Some people will always work it out. My sister uh, knows me as well as anyone does, of course. Um, she's she's ten years younger than me. She knows exactly how my mind works. 
I can't fool her with anything. She knows every twist that's coming because she knows me so well. Um, but luckily, she's the only one so far who's 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 predicted everything. So, um, well, I was going to say you've got a clever trick going on as well. Well, not a trick. That's not a fair way to put it. The fact that you have the book running over different locations, yeah, also means that you're keeping people excited to know what's going on here, and then you take them somewhere else, and then there's exciting yeah. action going on, and you're always wanting to come back. But at the same time, you're keeping this pace going at a pounding rate because of that. Yeah, I, 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 I like to write in different locations. I like to write from different points of views. Um, and I think that, that probably goes back to the fact that before my first book, I didn't know what a point of view was. I've never done a writing book, and there are certain right. things I, I, I learned to write by reading, a writing course, sorry. I learned to write by reading. And some things you don't notice. And what I didn't notice were point of view characters. It was only after I'd written um, The Killer Intent and was halfway through Mark for Death that Pippa explained to me what a point of view character was. And I had to go back and make a decision. Do I completely rewrite this book so there's one point of view character throughout? Or do we just jump around points? And, and I enjoy jumping around point of view yeah. characters. And provided you are provided they are characters. And there's no point doing it with a cipher. But provided that, you're de- that you develop those characters, I like to have point of view characters. And I think that helps with the pace because yeah. it can't all be on one man. Not every book is die hard. It no, and I think you lose a lot with that. You, there's only so much you can know in that context. Yeah. Yeah, and of course that one character couldn't be in several locations, so that's another issue. That yeah, happen. and 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 it, I just enjoy it that way. It gives you so much more freedom, mm. and and it it is rare that something will go on in one place that doesn't affect anywhere else. So, uh, yeah, it's it works in some books. It wouldn't. I mean, Power Play, for example, was set in London and in in Washington. Less so, um, Mark for Death, uh, not Mark for Death. Sorry, No Way to Die. You were f- basically following a route. And mm. so there was no need for that jumping around as much. Whereas um, whereas the Shadow Network, it's because of the two very, very separate but interconnected plots, it works perfectly. And it, and it keeps, it, as you say, it keeps the pace going. It keeps the pace up. No, it, it really does. So back on character a little bit again, I'm talking about the villains now. It's interesting the way, I, I mean, I think um, Kalvinda Vic Sethi, the, the nasty assassin yeah. type character, um, it's, in a sense, it's almost less is more, and it's interesting with the monk as well. It's not so much because the monk is the Shadow Network's conspiracy leader. We can say that, much, I think. Yeah. But um, it's not so much what he does. You, you don't. You keep it, us away from that because we don't know his identity. But it's how he manages to make other characters work around him. Mm. So it's a sort of less is more approach, isn't it? It is. It, it, I mean, it's, I've had some people say we wish we'd see more of him, and, and, mm. and that's, that's high praise. Um, oh, we didn't see enough of him. I actually take that as praise. I don't want you to see any more of him. I want you to want to see more of him. I want you to be intrigued by that character and then to yeah. to maybe look a bit into the backstory afterwards once you hear some names and you hear some uh, where where these people are from. Um, but but yeah, I think if you're going to have a mastermind, you should be a mastermind. Yeah. And if you're going to have a mastermind, unless you are one, you can't really write one in too much detail yeah, because otherwise point. at some point he's going to do something stupid like I would. And <laughs> I, I, I'm not a genius. I can't be in the mind of a genius. And therefore there's only so much of that genius's mind that I can write. I mean, there's, there's a bit in there where he's going through his sort of memory mind palace thing. Mm. Um, and, and that was difficult to write because I was like, uh, that's kind of what I imagine a very I remember reading about Nikolai Tesla and how he would design things in three dimensions in his head. 
Right. And that's kind of what I was going for with that um, because that's my idea of a genius. And so there's only so much of a genius you can write if you're not one. Yeah, you know what? Yeah. Actually, it's it's a mistake they make an awful lot with American films and television because they tell you somebody's a genius. Yeah. And then they tell you later on that somebody is a genius. And they're telling you because it isn't bloody obvious from the way exactly. it's written. Yeah. But yeah, that's not very helpful at all. And, and, and if, they, if they show you too much of, of, of him doing stuff, it will become immediately apparent that you're not a genius. Yeah, absolutely. What about then, um, from a research point of view, I mean, obviously you are a senior barrister, you know, you've got a lot of experience. But on the other hand, this was to do with the Human Rights Court in Hague. And, uh, well, the, the uh, war crimes. One of the people involved in the book, Hannibal Strauss, is actually on trial at the time. Yeah. Did you look for an expert to help you with that? I did. Um, I spoke to a chap called Carl Buckley, who is a human rights lawyer, um, who very kindly sent me a book that's around here somewhere um, that explaining all of it. Uh, and I read it. And having read it, I decided not to have a war crimes trial. <laughs> um, <laughs> this book was initially going to be, my plan was, all the same things going on, but it was going to be an ongoing war crimes trial. Right. Michael Devlin was going to be acting in the war crimes trial as the barrister. Oh, and, very different. and the witness was going to be someone that Dempsey got hold of much earlier and getting him to the trial was going to be the tension part of the book. Yeah, there are people trying to stop him as he tries to get him. All yeah, I see. Right. The trial. That was going to be the book. And then I read what Carl gave me and listened to Carl's advice about the way in which the, um, in which the European, uh, not European, sorry, the international criminal court works. And I decided it's going to be shit. <laughs> it's going to be a really bad book because <laughs> some things just aren't interesting. They might sound interesting when you say the name war crimes trial. Yeah. And they're, they're necessary, trial. but and they're necessary. But when you look at them, Oh God, um, I was apologies to Carl if I'm describing what you do. <laughs> Obviously not, but from a from an entertainment point of view, I um I took the view that yeah, I, I changed what the book was about. So I did do some research on that, but the research led to me writing the book I wrote as opposed to the book I intended to write. Yeah, it's yeah, I find that really interesting. I'm I'm wondering actually, do lawyers make good detectives in the sense that when it comes to writing the books, you know, because you you. I suppose it's an investigative process, isn't it? I mean, I can't imagine sitting down with a whole pile of, of files in front of me and you have to make the logic of that in your head as well. I mean, that sounds yeah. simple, but it's not, is it? You know, actually understanding that. No, I think lawyers would generally make very good detectives. I think yeah. that, um, I think police officers are very good detectives. Lawyers would make great detectives. Both police officers and lawyers would make great criminals. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's part of the same process. The investigation is not done till the trial. Um, it's just that the other, when you get to the trial, that's when the other side of the investigation starts. When you get to the trial, that's where the defense side of the investigation starts as you search for an alternative explanation. And it doesn't mean that you'll make a great writer necessarily, but it does mean that you are very thorough and you will, you know what you're looking for, you know, and you know, you know, the possibilities of the things you see. Because as I mean, going back to what you said earlier, not, things aren't black and white. No, and quite often things aren't true or false. Mm. Because there is a good example of this. A good example will be from telephone um, telephone material. Right, an awful lot of cases are based upon cell site tracking, and that will be that your phone is being tracked by a cell site, and the 
the cell the cell mass that your phone is using will always be depending on where you are if you're in the country it could be up to five kilometers away mm-hmm. if you're in the city it's more likely about 500 yards away and you can follow someone's movement via cell sites but it's limited it's very limited so when an expert gives evidence on cell site material they will say uh yes it's not uh, it's it's the the cell site hits are consistent with him being at x location i see right and you say okay okay and that sounds like that and if you are a jury that sounds like he's saying the absolute truth yes, is at I see that location so my question is always i will always then pick another point on the map that is always maybe half a mile away and i'll say it's also consistent with them being there isn't it yes it is and okay, it, so yeah. what you're telling me is your evidence could mean we are either at this point or at this point half a mile away or at any point in between them yes it is so it's about the fact that that truth as it first sounds it's consistent mm. with him being in hersey's road isn't truth at all and that yeah, i think is what you look at as a lawyer and i think that's what that's the detection i'm talking about as a lawyer is you're not so much looking for the thing that proves it you're looking for the other meanings and the other possibilities from what the evidence is. Mm. One thing that's always struck me about evidence is when they turn around and say things like, you know, oh, but there's a lot of disagreement there. And I think the one time that every witness turns up and says exactly the same thing, that's when you know you've got a conspiracy on your hands because absolutely people don't come up with the same stuff. I once prosecuted in a magistrate's court, Mm. I once prosecuted a, um, an offence where five police officers turned up and they turned up, they all gave exactly the same evidence and they used the same words. And at the end of the case, I said, I'm dropping this case. Mm. Uh, Why? Because you're all lying. It just doesn't work this way. And it happens. It happens. Anyway, to take us back to the book for one minute, I want to finish on a legal question, but just just before we get to that, I want us to talk a little bit about the character Frankowski because he goes on the run after this incident that happens in The Hague. And one of the really interesting things about it is this isn't a spy on the run. This isn't a guy who knows exactly what he's doing. He doesn't know what to do when he goes. Yeah. What made you come up with that idea? Because that makes it a far more fascinating thing. Which it makes it more like us in a sense. You know, imagine yeah, exactly. if, if we were there and we were wondering, well, what the hell do I do to hide? I don't know how to hide. Yeah, it's, it's, it's basically what I know. He has some guidance and he has some guidance from a from an unexpected source. But. But but yeah, I I actually think that that's much more mm. like the reader. That's much more like the reader. There's actually a blogger called Con Frankowski, Con Frankowski whose name and description I stole for right. the book. I, I asked his permission, um, but I just love the name. I love the name, and and it all just worked as a, as a as as a um, as a combination. But I, but once I'd done that, oh no disrespect to you, Con. I then kind of made him the character, and mm-hmm. I kind of thought, what would Con do? If he, if he were in this situation and it was really helpful because it did allow me to think some people and, and con is is in the same sort of technical stuff that, that mm-hmm. the character is and so i did think well there are things he would know about there are things you'd know about that once he gives it some thought he would realize certain things but otherwise it's a desperate scramble and what can he do and how can he get away and i just found that to be a really interesting a really interesting parallel to Dempsey because obviously Dempsey yes, is right. uber yes. professional, uber trained, knows exactly what he's doing in, in all circumstances, always a step ahead. And I thought, well, you got that. Then perhaps we could have the juxtaposition of him against Con, who is the ultimate everyman. 
Yeah, and it definitely makes for very interesting reading. You talked about characters, in a sense, almost like queuing up. What about ideas? Do they come as easily? Um, they do, to be honest. Uh, yes, <laughs> yesterday <clears throat> the old Bailey was shut down. There was yeah, a, right. um, there was an explosion in the old Bailey, an electrical yeah. fire, and they shut it all down. And I I watched a bit of the footage from some mates of mine, some mates sending videos for, from from the street because they were all kicked out as well. And one of the things they took a video from the street, they sent me a video from the street of a Serco van full of defendants just sitting there on Old Bailey, which the street's called Old Bailey. That's what yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sitting there on Old Bailey with a number of their wives going up and banging on the wall and talking to them through the wall and no sign of any police officers or any security. And I watched that and I just thought, well, that's a Michael Devlin book. They've just now told us you you need to get someone out of custody in the old baby. <laughs> They've just showed us how. There's to do a it. way to do it. Yeah, yeah. So that's so that's how easily they come. That will now yeah. be a Michael Dublin book sometime in the future, but it's on the list. <laughs> so you've given us an idea of the next book. Is it? I mean, is this a series you can just keep going with? I mean, I suppose it depends on the readers. I suppose really, doesn't it? Yeah. If people keep if if people keep reading it and people keep publishing it, um, then yeah, I'll keep writing it. <laughs> Yeah, provided my publishers are happy to just keep churning them out. I've got an eight-book contract. Right. Where I'm, I'm writing book six at the moment. So we can't be far off discovering if they're gonna if they're gonna want to extend it. And mm. um so that's a conversation we'll be having in due course. And if they're willing to extend it, I'll be willing to write it. I mean, I've got I've got I've I've got a list of ideas effectively. I have like a one or two page one-liners. They're all one-liners. <laughs> Each one is a one-liner with a name next to it, and the name is who will be the main character. So most of them Dempsey, some Michael, and a couple of them actually not Michael or Dempsey, but still the same same world, same universe. We know we know <laughs> they're connected. And as I say, at the beginning of the process, I just pick one of those one of those one-liners and think about it for three months. So there's 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 about well, I think now I think I'm up to about twenty eight of them. It doesn't mean <laughs> that doesn't mean I can write all of them. It doesn't mean that they wouldn't. No, no, but but it means that you're sure. It means there's sure somewhere to go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> what about the well, any TV or film interest? I mean, these would make magnificent. I mean, oh, no, thank you very much for saying that. There, there no, is need- actually, we sold the rights very early on to Liberty Film. They made a they made made a film called Moon Source Code Warcraft. The Duncan Jones, the director, Stuart Finnegan, the producer. We sold it to them very early on, and at the moment they are. There's, there's sort of renewed vigor in in getting it made. I can't talk about it actually very much because it's very much on the cusp of, yeah, fair of an announcement. Uh, I wish I could, I really do, but um, I don't know. I don't know which. I don't know whether saying something at any point would then derail things. So, no, fair enough. But, um, but it could well it could well be that we see a potentially a killer intent TV series um, in right. the very near future. Okay, well let's watch this space on that one then. That legal question. I mean, for me, I don't think you have a functioning democracy if you don't have a functioning legal system. I agree. And to be honest, things aren't good at the moment, are they? The legal system is in disarray. I don't think we have a functioning democracy at the moment, if mm. I'm honest. Yeah, we've got, we're, we're being ruled by a party who have no interest in the legal system, who have no respect for the rule of law. We've got, our, yeah, we've got a prime minister who, who wasn't voted for as prime minister by I know our constitution doesn't demand it, but at yeah. some point you have to say but there should be a point where we're, people we're say, "Well, we should change." Down this. the line now, aren't we? Mm. We're mm. a good few people. We're a good few unelected prime ministers down the line now. Yeah, you are a disaster, um, as was the last one, as was the one before that, uh, but at least the one before that was elected. Um, 
And I think that, yeah, I think we are, we're not a functioning democracy. That's where a lot of my ideas come from, to be honest. Um, We we know what they portray themselves to be. That's not what they are. It seems that all that anyone's interested in at the moment is self-enrichment. I always compare our current government, without getting too political, to to corporate privateers or profiteers Mm. in America. These firms that go in, they buy a big company and they chop it up and sell it off as constituent parts. And I feel that's what they're doing to our country. Um, unfortunately, um, I'm not. I don't believe in in politics as football. I don't believe you have got a team. Mm. I've voted to. I've voted for various parties over the years, um, and I don't think that the alternative is much better. I don't think they're as bad. I don't. I, I think they they maybe have better intentions. Yeah, but in their own. But you shouldn't way, have to work vote for a least worst scenario. You know. In our, in it it would be better if there was vision doing. and compassion and things that you could see yeah. in the system that unfortunately we just can't see as things stand at the moment. It's very sad what what we've seen in our lifetime happen to the political classes. Mm. But the political classes now aren't into politics. They're not there for the country. They're there for themselves. They're there for their party. The mm. party thing has become very American. Yeah, yeah. America's always been your Democrat, Republican, died in the wall. It never used to be that way here, but it is now. And they're, and they're, they're there for their party. They're not there for the country. The amount of people who go out and, and lie for Rishi Shunak on morning TV. I mean, if they asked me to do that as an MP, I'd say, sack me. That, that's it, though, isn't it? It's not just avoiding issues. It's actually downright lying. It's just doing yeah. that in public and not caring that you do that. Yeah, And that, that's, that's when lying. the contract between the voter and the, and the politician has been broken completely. If they're just lying and they're not telling us that. One of my biggest issues, or a huge issue, is with Lindsay Hoyle, the Speaker of the House of Commons, mm. who will shout someone down and eject them from the Commons for saying you're lying. Yeah. Rather than no, saying to the well. liar, stop lying. Mm. Because they know it's, he knows they are lies. He knows that the only person telling the truth is the person who's saying you're lying. Yeah. Yet that's the one that gets ejected. Yeah, and it'd be interesting if they'd occasionally say, right, we're staying here until you answer this question. So you can come up with these bullshit replies, but until you actually answer the question, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. Anyway, look, I don't want to leave it on now. I mean, that, I, I think it's important that we talk about these things, but so with your expertise, I, I just thought it was... No, was I, I, I agree with you entirely. And yes, the legal, the legal system is in disarray. The legal system is is a mess, and, and it's p- from purely political reasons. And it's not just the Tories, it's Labour as well. It started mm. in 1997 with Tony Blair yeah. when, when he had the first cuts to the legal system, and they've been constant ever since. There's no one coming through. Um, duty solicitors, if you get arrested, you want to have a duty solicitor. There used to be 7,000 of them in the country. Um, there is There are now 3,000 of them. Um, and that's the difference between 2010 and, and now. There's yeah. not enough. There are trials not happening every day because the old Bailey's blowing up or because Sheffield Crown Court is flooded or mm. because Harrow Crown Court is falling down. Those three things. Oh, and also, sorry, let's go to another one, because Manchester Crown Court uh, can't open its back doors for the um, really? for the prisoners. All of those things I've just mentioned have happened in the last two weeks. Last two weeks? The last two weeks. All of those things have happened in the last two weeks because they're not invested in the prisoner state, yeah, yeah. In, in the court of state. They're not even paying to maintain the buildings. So there's no lawyers. There's not enough judges. The, 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 the amount of barristers in the country has been halved. Mm. There aren't enough of us to do the trials that are there. In 20 years, I never once turned up for a trial to find I didn't have an opponent. In the last two years, it's happened to me five times. It's absolutely destroyed. Yeah, and I don't yeah. know if they can fix it. 
I don't know what to say about that. That that's yeah, it is truly awful. I don't know they can fix it. Yeah. The average age of a solicitor in this country is fifty-four of a criminal solicitor, fifty-four, because no one's coming into crime. Yeah, and why would they? For yeah, and that's the point, though, isn't it? Why like would that? they? Yeah, why would they? They get they're, they're paid effectively minimum wage to be to, to to just have to hold up a system like Atlas holding up the sky. Again, I've never understood. I mean, if you made this point to people, if we could make this point to people, if you want to be represented by somebody, do you really want to be represented by somebody who's earning as much money as if they work in McDonald's? Well, you know, if your answer to that is yes, then you're a moron. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. But there we are. That's yes. that's anyway. I said I wouldn't end that, on that, so let's do a more and, positive. And that, Paul, is why I like to write these books as entertainment. <laughs> <laughs> I see why you need the other world now. Yeah. Um, just a last question then about a recommendation. I don't mind if it's a film or a book. It doesn't have to be a crime story. Who knows? It's up to you. But something you've read maybe recently or seen recently that you really enjoyed. What did I see recently? I I saw, uh, I'll talk about what I saw actually, because the problem of saying about books is I always feel like there are always a few that I want to talk about and I always feel I'm leaving them out. Uh, um, yeah. And, and you know, people that I like and I'm friendly with who are very talented. So you feel, I always feel if I mention one and not the others. So um, yeah, Oppenheimer. I watched Oppenheimer right. recently. And, and that was absolutely fascinating because it was like, well, I forgot, it was like we've forgotten how to make real films and now someone's remembered. It was it was just so interesting, mm. so it's so interesting, and so just 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 it, you forget the hours that are flying by because I mean it was a very very long film. Yeah, it is a long film, but yeah. I mean I, I really recommend it. It's a film that obviously a lot of people have seen it. I get that, but it's one of those films that is that is that is every bit as good as the reviews. It's every bit as good as the reviews. Every bit as good as the critical reviews. Mm. I mean, the, the, it's quite clear where all the Oscars are going. It's just yeah. it's just a really great film. And then I, I, I should really say, I compared it with the the flower, the murder of the flower moon, or yeah, uh, killers of the flower moon, which was awful, absolutely awful. It was just so boring. I mean, just nothing happened. It, yeah, it's not but enough to make a worthy film, is it? You know, it no. still has to be an entertainment. Exactly, and I think that's yeah. the that's the key difference. And obviously, two great directors, one yeah. of whom I think might just be past it now because I felt the Irishman was equally as bad. But it's just interesting that there's two very, very long films about the same length, I think. I think The Flower Moon might be yeah, slightly probably, longer, yes, but longer. about the same length. And yet one of them kept me completely enthralled with very little happening for three hours. And the other one, also very little happening, but moments of higher drama in the sense of the murders, mm-hmm. completely lost. It's um, Yeah, so I recommend, I recommend Oppenheimer. I don't recommend The Killers of the Flower Moon. Okay, well, I'm going to put that in the notes. Tony, that's been brilliant. Thank you very much. Cool. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So a big thank you to Tony for a really fascinating interview there. I enjoyed that chat. If you want to buy The Shadow Network, you can get it from all good book outlets. If you want to get it from us, you can click the link on the program notes and that'll take you through to bookshop.org and you can get it there. If you've enjoyed the show, please rate and subscribe with your favourite podcast provider. In any case, I'll be back in a short while with another interview. But for now, bye and thank you very much for listening.